Father, we come this morning dependent, needy, some of us broken, many of us weary. Our hearts are conflicted, carrying many of us great burdens. Some of us carry the burden of grief. We pray for the Stadnik family this morning. Knowing the grief and the sorrow of what it means to say goodbye to one on this earth who has poured into us and ministered to us and been a help to us. And in these days of COVID, saying goodbye is so different. And so we pray for Valerie that you would comfort her as she grieves the death of her mother, knowing with certainty of her mother's presence with you, but grieving over her absence here, longing for reunion. And we pray that even as they make plans for a funeral that is complicated by her father's case of COVID, that you would give great comfort and wisdom and encouragement of heart. Several in our own body are also experiencing COVID and wrestling through the the difficulties that have come to them because of this illness. And would you give grace to them, strength to them, courage to them, Would you keep them from anxiousness? Would you keep those who are caring for them from anxiousness? And would you be so kind as to give full and complete healing to each of these who is suffering? Others of us have other family members who are ill. Others of us are ill in other ways. And we feel the weight of bodies that are decaying, and we grieve. Others of us are conflicted over what is coming on Tuesday. Some of us are anxious. Some of us are worried about the results of the election. Some of us are worried about the impact of whatever the results might be and how people might respond. Some of us are worried about the potential for increased suffering in the church. And this is a weight to our hearts. And we need, we need your comforting word. Others of us are are sorrowful and grieved and even sickened over things that we see in our culture, a world that has gone so astray from you in such rebellion against you in so many ways. And even in the midst of that, perhaps because hostilities against Christ are increasing, we are even more fearful of sharing our faith in Christ and the hope of glory. Would you make us particularly bold these days with this gospel? And would you make us bold because of what we hear this morning? Father, all these things are to simply say, we need you today. And it is also to remind our hearts that we have you because of Christ. We have everything we need. We have security. We have safety We have protection. If we are in Christ, no one can harm us. Oh, they might inflict a little pain. They might kill our bodies, but they cannot harm and touch our souls, for we are protected by you. Oh, Father, we we are safe in you. It is impossible for us not to be safe when we are in you. 
And might the commonality of that truth and the hope of Christ drive our worship in this message? Would it transform our hearts through this message? And might it culminate in satisfaction with Christ at the table of communion? So would you guide us now? Instruct us, change us, give us hope. We pray in the name of Christ for His glory, for His exaltation. Amen. I am what you might call a fair-weather exerciser. I prefer to get my exercise outdoors. If I had my druthers, I wouldn't use my membership at the Y, but everything I do, I would do outside. However, it has to fit certain parameters. For instance, I don't like exercising outside when it's over 80 degrees. I've been known to go at 81, but it's got to be cloudy. I don't like going in full sun when it's over 80. I definitely will not ever go if it is below 40. And truth be told, if I'm going when it's between 40 and 50, I'm usually grumbling the entire time. I don't like that. I think 60 to 65 is a nice temperature to go running. As long as it has low humidity and no wind and no rain and no hills. And I really get irritated when cars cross the road when I'm trying to cross it. And I really don't like other joggers along the way either. Uh, That all means that there's about two days a year where I like exercising outside. I think... I gotta turn this on, don't I? There we go. I think, I think I need help. (laughs) There we go. I think that looks nice, don't you? Or that, as long as it's not humid. This week wasn't my favorite week for exercising outside. Many of us live our lives the way I prefer to exercise. We want life to always bring clear skies, fair weather, no obstructions, no difficulties. So, how's 2020 working for y'all? In Romans chapter 12, the apostle tells us about living life in the body of Christ. In the first couple of verses, he tells us that we need to be transformed. We need to be growing in sanctification. Part of the means of growing in sanctification is that we're going to be gifted by the Spirit of God with spiritual gifts, and we're going to be using those gifts within the context of the church body to serve others. That's verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 14, he tells us what it means to love in the church body, how it means to care for the church body, how it, what it means to, to build up others in the church body, how we relate to one another. And the dominating theme in verses 9 through 13 is, is this idea of love. That's the first thing he talks about, let love be without hypocrisy. And then even in verse 13, at the end of that little section, Practicing hospitality means a pouring out of ourselves for others in love. And we'll talk about that in a few moments as well. So everything in these verses, verses 9 to 13, is about how we love one another in the body of Christ. But sometimes loving one another in the body of Christ is messy, isn't it? Sometimes loving others in the body of Christ is difficult. And while the apostle doesn't say it specifically, we get that hint in verses 12 and 13 when he says, rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. And brothers and sisters, he's not talking about rejoicing when things are really good because it's easy to rejoice when things are going well, but we have to be called, we have to be summoned to rejoice when things are difficult. So I think when he says in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, he's thinking about difficult circumstances. And likewise, we only need to be told to persevere when we're in tribulation because when things are going swimmingly, like in 2019, nobody was struggling with perseverance. 2020, we're all struggling with perseverance, aren't we? And when we, when things are going well, it's easy to pray. When things are not going well, sometimes we say, where is God? Why pray? 
And we need the reminder to prayer. And so in these verses, verses 12 and 13, while Paul is continuing on in the theme of love, I think he is also building a new idea or an adjacent idea to say when things are difficult in the body of Christ, what are you going to do? He's told us at the end of verse 11 that we are to serve the Lord. Part of our service of the Lord is that we serve one another. When things are difficult, when burdens are heavy, when trials are coming, when relationships are difficult, how will you serve one another? And we know we shouldn't despair. And we know we shouldn't complain. But let's be honest, 2020 has not brought, brought very many of us what we expected this year. It's not turned out the way we thought it would January 1 when we were making all those, all those uh, promises about changes that we were going to be doing in this coming year. We didn't know just how many changes we were going to be making this year, did we? And so we're tempted to despair. We haven't gotten, we haven't received what we expected and what we wanted. And this next week, about half of our country is not going to receive what it expects and what it wants. Some of you will not receive what you expect and what you want on Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever the election is finalized. What do you do? We know we're not supposed to complain. We know we shouldn't despair. We know we shouldn't be anxious, but what should we do? What can we do? What, we, what have we been enabled to do? What does service of the Lord look like when we are discouraged and when we are suffering in life and from life? These verses instruct us. This is how I summarize it. When life is hard, be purposeful to serve the Lord and His people. When life is hard... When difficulties arise, when things change, when you don't receive what you want, when you, when you don't get from life what you're expecting from life, when you don't receive even in the body of Christ what you're expecting from the body of Christ, Paul says, be purposeful, be intentional, work hard and labor at serving the Lord and serving His people. And these two verses... The Apostle provides us with five activities to practice when life gets hard. Five activities to practice when life gets hard. Life, life will get hard. Not just hard this week, not just hard in 2020, not just hard with COVID. There are all kinds of other hardness in life as well, isn't there? There are all kinds of other relationships that are challenging. And what does the Apostle What does God tell us through the pen of the apostle? He gives us five activities to practice when life gets hard. The first is this. When life gets hard, rejoice confidently. Rejoice confidently. Paul's instruction in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, is a common one for him. He hasn't actually used that that verb in that way in this book yet, but we will see it again in this letter. In fact, we'll see it in a week or two. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We'll see it again in chapter 15, verse 10. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 13 of chapter 15, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So so this idea of joy is being introduced here, but we're going to see it more. And we see this this theme all the way through the apostles' other letters, don't we? We see it dominate in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice, he says in Philippians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always. It's, there's always an opportunity in every circumstance, in every situation of life to rejoice. What does Paul mean when he uses this word rejoice? When biblical writers talk about, about joy, they're they're using happy language. They're, they're talking about, about things that should give us a settledness in Christ. But it's, it's happy language in a different sense than from what the world gives. The world, the world is talking about a superficial kind of happiness, but biblical writers talk about happiness this way. It is comparable to peace. It is a confident, 
contented view of life that trusts God in every circumstance. Joy is not giddiness. Joy is not necessarily laughter. It is a settled and satisfied rest in God. It is the attitude of heart that says, in all things, God is good. In all circumstances, in all burdens, in all, in all things that generally entice us to contentedness, He is good. Well, the writer of the Ecclesiastes says it this way. Chapter 7, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, heart may be happy. We're not talking about giddy there, are we? We're talking about rest. We're talking about contentedness. We're talking about peaceableness. I trust God. I want you to notice as well that while this is in form a participle rejoicing, Paul's intention is that we take this as a command. It's an imperative. It's our responsibility. It's our calling. It's our duty. And that also means that, brothers and sisters, in every circumstance of life, when we are called to rejoice, it is possible to rejoice. God never calls us to do something without also equipping us to do it. If He commands us to do something, then He also empowers us to do it. So when He calls us to rejoice, He's not saying, you should rejoice, and by the way, it's impossible. He is saying, you should rejoice, and I have given you everything that you need in order to be joyful in this circumstance. Augustine said it this way, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Command anything that fits within the parameters of your will, and then as you do that, would you also equip us to follow your commands? And brothers, that's exactly what he does. What is most important about this clause, however, is not that God commands us to rejoice. What is important is the object of our joy. Notice what he says. Rejoicing in hope. One of the main reasons that we struggle to rejoice is that we are prone to seeking our joy in the wrong things. I read an article this week. I actually printed it out this morning and highlighted it to bring with me, and I think it's sitting on my desk in my office, so I'm going to work from memory here. But the Wall Street Journal this week, in fact, I think it was even yesterday, had an article by one of their columnists entitled Finding Hope. And the idea is that there is one word for our day in the middle of the election and in the middle of the election cycle and in the middle of covid The word that we need is hope. And then she says, what I'm talking about is not wishful thinking, but I'm talking about, about hope, about, about having, about having, uh, an agent to accomplish what you desire. And I, well, that's, that's good. And then everything she lists is just wishful thinking. One of the things she talks about, and I can't remember exactly how she phrased it, uh, was something like, you need to, and she didn't use this word, but it's the word that comes to mind, you need to visualize what your world would look like and be very specific about what that world looks like. And that will give you hope. And I'm thinking, well, a lot of us did that January 1. Didn't work out so well. And we were really specific about all the things we were going to accomplish and the promotions we were going to get and the new office and the new furniture and the, and the increase in salary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all that got washed out, didn't it? It's just wishful thinking. Brothers and sisters, we need something better than wishful thinking. What we need is the hope of Scripture So when the apostle says to rejoice in hope, 
He is telling us to find our joy in the confident expectation that God will fulfill our salvation in every detail. He's not telling us, visualize world peace or world peace, either one. He's saying, lean on, depend on, rest in the fact that when you have been saved by Christ, He will finish what He has promised. He will bring it about. This is, this is why we were called to worship by chapter 5, verse 2 to 5. We exalt We delight in, verse 2, the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God is not just some wishful thinking about what God might do. It is the reality of what God has already accomplished through Christ and is keeping safe for us until we get to heaven. And that hope, verse 5, does not disappoint Everything in this world will disappoint you without exception. Many of you have a spouse sitting next to you. You can even look over at them right now and say, I love you. And then say, I've disappointed you, haven't I? And I see a few of you nodding. I've disappointed Regine. I know I have. And truth be told, she's disappointed me. And she knows she has. Everything in this world is going to disappoint you. Money will disappoint you. And anything that money can buy will disappoint you. That new car in 12 years is going to be in a junkyard, rusting. Everything that you can buy with money will disappoint you. Beauty and youth and sex cannot give ultimate satisfaction. They will ultimately all disappoint. They will all get old and fade away. Power, authority, politics will never bring fulfillment There's always another politician. There's always another agenda. There's always a new law. There's always another judge. The judge that looked so hopeful for standing for truth gets to Washington, D.C. and gets corrupted and doesn't stand for truth. And brothers and sisters, if that is where we find our hope and that is where we find our expectation, we are doomed to dissatisfaction. It will never satisfy. But brothers and sisters, Christ's hope will never disappoint. That doesn't mean you're going to get a promotion next week. But it does mean when you get to glory and you see the fullness of what God has provided for you and your salvation, you will not be disappointed one iota, one nanosecond, one micrometer. I don't even know if that's a measurement, but you won't be. Nothing will disappoint you. And you need and I need to not find our joy in candidates and in vaccines and in promotions and in money. We need our satisfaction in Christ and in our salvation. And whatever happens on Tuesday or Wednesday or next Tuesday or whenever they decide who wins, nothing for us in Christ has changed one bit. Oh, the circumstances might change. I grant you that. Might there be suffering? You bet. But for brothers and sisters, your hope won't change. What God has provided for you will not change. When life gets hard, rejoice confidently in the hope, the expectation, the reality of what Christ has provided. When life gets hard, persevere actively.
Notice the middle of the verse, verse 12, persevering in tribulation. When Paul says that, he's telling us something to do, persevere, and when to do it, when we have trials. And this phrase reminds us of the reality of trials, the reality of difficulty and suffering and persecution. And just by way of reminder, trials are not minor inconveniences. Trials are not slow tax returns and sore muscles after a workout and a spat with a spouse. They are deep, serious trouble. This is the word that Jesus uses when he talks about the difficulties that the world will experience at the end of time. This is not something minor. This is severity. And I want you to notice this. Trouble is not something to avoid because it cannot be avoided. Trouble is not something to avoid because it cannot be avoided. There is an expectation that tribulation is coming. And Scripture scripture is full of these reminders. Remember chapter 8? What will separate us, or who will separate us, rather, from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Why does he list those things? Because they're a reality. This is, this is where people live. This is how people live. This is the world in which we live. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. He promised it. Paul promised it. Paul experienced it. When Paul writes this, persevering in tribulation, it's not just, a, it's not just a, an idea that he thinks, well, that'd be a good thing to write about, though I don't really know anything about it. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Why does he keep saying dangers? Because he wants us to know it's a dangerous world. He knew what he was talking about. In fact, I was thinking this week, do I even know of anybody in Scripture that didn't suffer tribulation and trial? Just kind of go through the list of Bible characters in your mind. You think about Adam and Noah and Abraham, Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel, seriously. How that man suffered. And Daniel and the twelve disciples, and Timothy, and Epaphroditus. This is the life of our Savior, isn't it? Who was reviled and suffered and threatened and bore sin that was not belonging to Him. It wasn't His sin. No one suffered like our Savior. It's an expectation. It's a reality. It is a normal part of life that should be expected by us. Nothing unusual has happened when we suffer, God has not failed. God has not forgotten us. God has not become incompetent. So the Apostle Peter writes in chapter 4 of his first letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. Instead, verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Just because we are in Christ does not mean we will not suffer. Hear me. You're safe. But that doesn't mean you won't suffer. Trials are coming. Trials will come. We can expect it. Does the world hate believers? Yes. Is the world and does this government hate believers? Yes. Are they on our side? No. In Texas, I think we're a little bit jaded. We're in a, we're in a unique, unique position right now. My brothers, this government, this world hates us. And we should have no expectation of anything different. 
What do we do when we are in tribulation? Notice what Paul says, persevering. We persevere. Perseverance sounds just kind of like gritting our teeth and tolerating it and putting up with it somewhat unhappily. That's not what he means. Perseverance is an active engagement to remain steadfast. It is staying the course. It is continuing to move forward to the goal which God has given us to be like Christ. It is driving a stake in the ground and saying, Here I stand, as Martin Luther did 503 years ago yesterday. Four years after Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. He was brought to Worms to stand trial as a heretic against the Roman Catholic Church. He was asked to recant his statements against the Pope and his statements for justification by faith alone. And this is how he replied. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason... For I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. That's not quite a recantation of his objection to the Pope, is it? Can't believe the Pope, because he's a liar, is what he's saying. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And there he stood. Brothers, that's what this world needs from us as a perseverance to drive a stake in the ground that says, here we stand and we will not be moved. Bring the trials and bring the suffering. Bring the difficulty. Here we stand. If you make as your goal an avoidance of trial, you will not stand You will not persevere. But if you make as your goal to honor Christ, no matter, then you will stand and then you will move forward towards Him. Oh, brothers, when life gets hard, let us persevere actively. And then, thirdly, when life gets hard, let us pray faithfully. If we will rejoice and if we will persevere, we will never do it on our own. And so Paul reminds us at the end of verse 12 that we must be devoted to prayer. To be devoted means to hold on to something. It means to persist in. It means to give attention to something. It means to be faithful. And in this context, it means to be faithful to prayer. Devotion to prayer refers to how often we pray But even more than that, it refers to the effort expended in keeping our habit of prayer. It's hard work. And yet we continue to labor in prayer. We continue to push on in prayer. Says the commentator John Murray, listen carefully. The measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. So, brothers and sisters, we can tell how well we are praying by how well we are enduring. Think about that for a minute. Are you struggling? Are you weak? Broken? Weary? Prone to giving up? Then a question for you, a question for me is, am I really being faithful in prayer? Am I persisting in pursuing the mind of Christ in prayer? The apostle is reminding us we don't just need faithfulness. We do need faithfulness, but we need faithfulness 
particularly to prayer. And, and this is a theme that is dominant in his letters, isn't it? First Thessalonians chapter five. And isn't it interesting that first Thessalonians five is, is somewhat following the pattern of this verse, right? So rejoice always, rejoicing in hope, pray without ceasing, be devoted to prayer. So first S five, six, seventeen reminds us to pray without ceasing. In Ephesians chapter 6, he reminds us to pray for him and for all the brothers, to pray for gospel opportunities. Philippians chapter 4, he reminds us to pray. Colossians chapter 4, he reminds us to pray. As the apostle calls us to prayer, he also gives us an example of prayer himself. So he prayed for ministry opportunities and he prayed for his converts and, and he prayed for prayers to be made for him and, and, and prayed for prayers to be made for his own boldness. And, and he asked for believers to pray for all other believers and he asked for persistence in prayer. This is a man who's consumed with prayer. And isn't it? Isn't it an amazing truth also to recognize that when our prayers are weak, when our prayers fail, that we have one who is praying for us. Chapter 8, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know what to pray. The Spirit has an inner Trinitarian conversation with the Father and says, let me, let me take this prayer on your behalf. Chapter 8, also verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, who rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The Spirit prays for us, the Son prays for us, and they're talking to the Father They know what we need. They get what we need. So when our prayers fail, the Son's prayers and the Spirit's prayers do not. And when we pray, we may not receive, therefore, everything we want, but we will receive everything we need. Because the Son and the Spirit are praying for us. We will receive what we need to endure. Brothers and sisters, we are dependent on prayer. We need prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to God. It is essential to us as eating food and drinking water and breathing air. It is primary. It is not secondary. And did you notice the relationship between these three exhortations in verse 12? We will find our joy only in the ultimate end of our salvation. But until we get there, we're going to be experiencing difficulty and pain on this earth. And so the apostle knows that and thus exhorts us to persist and endure. But because of the frailty and the weakness of our hearts and our flesh, we need help. So he reminds us to pray and to access the power that is available to us in Christ. So to endure trials and to rejoice in hope. We need to pray in faithfulness. With prayer, endurance and joy are now possible for the believer. And brothers and sisters, if we are not enduring and if we are not joyful, might I submit to you that it could be because we are not praying. Oh, brothers, when life gets hard, pray faithfully. Two more for us to see. Verse 13 When life gets hard, give liberally. Verse 12 gives us wisdom in persisting in things that are for us. So when life gets hard, he's talking about things that address the attitudes of our heart and the things that we must do internally for ourselves to guard ourselves, to bolster ourselves, to to equip ourselves for the walk of faith in Christ. Verse 13 now offers two commands that direct how we relate to others. 
and how we care for others when life is difficult. And the first thing the apostle says in verse 13 is to contribute to the needs of the saints. Notice particularly that his emphasis is on caring for other believers. That doesn't mean that it's illegitimate to care for unbelievers, but it does mean that our first priority is to care for one another. Just like a husband's priority is first to care for his wife and then to care for his children, the believer's priority is first to care for Christian brothers. Our priority is the people in this room, the people with whom we have identified ourselves in this body through Jesus Christ. And the apostle says, we are to contribute to their needs. That word contributing is the word fellowshipping. We, we share, we have in common material goods that will provide for one another's needs. This isn't a politically mandated redistribution of wealth. He's not talking about socialism or communism here. He's talking about a free and generous and liberal caring of one another's needs because we love one another and we want to. No one is compelling us. But we have been graced to and we desire to care for one another. Says one commentator, in contributing to the needs of others, we identify ourselves with the needs of others and make them our own. It's not just that my brother has a need, but when my brother has a need, it's, it's a need that I have. And so I work to care for it. This was particularly necessary in the early church because so many would have been poor because of persecution. Think about the Philippian church that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that they, they lived in poverty of affliction. Think about all the churches that were scattered that, that the apostle Peter was writing to. Think about the Hebrews who were persecuted to such a degree that they were, that they were considering turning their back on Christ and returning to Judaism. Persecution, suffering, trial, difficulty with financial loss, with material loss was a very real situation in the early church. And the apostle compels the early churches to share with one another. When Paul says, Paul says that when things get hard, we should look first to care for others. I don't know about you, but in my life, when things get hard, I want to, I, I want to close ranks and make sure I'm taken care of. Cause I mean, I love y'all and everything, but I need to make sure I'm taken care of, right? And Paul turns that on its head. And he says, you don't worry about yourself. You worry about your brother first. I've, I've told this before. I, I remember a particular situation, but it, it kind of became pervasive as I watched my dad operating as we were growing up. And I realized dad's the only one bringing in money, right, into the house. And we would go out to eat, and four of us were eating. And at some point I realized dad's got the only salary and there are three other leeches, I mean people, that he is supporting. What a rip. And then God graced me to be the one who has the job. And there are three other people in my home. And there's nothing I'd rather do than care for them. They're not leeches. They're a blessing in my life. When I was 12 years old, I didn't understand that. In adulthood, I understand that. It's a privilege. Brothers and sisters, when we care for one another in the body, it's that same privilege. And I'm grateful that in this body, that that, that has been the consistent pattern. I have, I have lots of stories but I can't tell you because I don't want to break confidentiality. But y'all are generous people and you look out for each other and that's the way it ought to be.
when COVID hit and the government said, let's fix this, fix this by throwing some money at it, a lot of you said, I don't know how many times I heard this, I don't need this money. Let me find a place to give it away to someone who can use it. And brothers, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul gets, is talking about here. When life gets hard, you give with liberality and you give with generosity. One more thing he says, end of verse 13. When life gets hard, love hospitably. Verse 13, contributing the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. The hospitality he's talking about here is not what Regine will say to me sometimes early in the week. Hey, do you want to get together with somebody on Friday night? You want to have somebody over? You want to meet somebody for dinner? That's not what he's talking about. The hospitality here was an entertainment of strangers, a care for strangers. It's the kind of hospitality that John talks about in his third letter, verses 5 and 6. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. So there, there are other believers in Jesus Christ who are strangers to you. And he says in verse 6, they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on on their way in a manner worthy of God. So they came to you. They were strangers. You didn't know them, but they were believers in Christ. And so you cared for their physical needs and then sent them on their way. That That's what he's talking about. He's talking about about people who live in a culture where there's not a holiday inn on every corner and they come to a new city and it's dangerous and it's difficult to sleep outdoors in public. And so believers are not just making their homes available, but they're always on the watch for for other believers to say, come into my home and let me care for you and let me provide for you. They're searching for opportunities. This responsibility of caring for strangers doesn't have a direct correlation for most of us because there's holiday inns and most of us can pay that bill. But the principle still applies. You see a believer in need, then love says, care for him. Don't hold back. Have a free hand with your own goods and be generous to him. I want you to notice one more thing about about these verses. It's not explicit, but it seems clear from the context that as Paul talks about caring for the needs of others, he's not talking about begrudging hospitality, but he's talking about generous and joyful care of one another. Just start in verse 9 and look through it and see how many words of affection there are. Love, Cling, devotion, brotherly love, fervent or passionate, rejoicing, fellowshipping. All of those words reflect that we have joy in one another and joy in the task and delight in doing them. They, they all indicate that when we are suffering, we should be joyfully and lovingly considering the needs of others and ministering to them and sharing with them out of the overflow of what God's provided for us. As I think about these verses, these are verses that are helpful at all times. They are particularly helpful when we are struggling to love and we, when we ourselves are weak, hurting, and needy. They're a reminder that we still have a task, even in our difficulty. And our task, in part, according to these verses, is to not just look inward, but to look outward. How will I care for others? These are also clarifying verses for this time, this season in our country's life. And they're timely verses for this week. Whatever happens this week... On Wednesday morning, nothing will change for any of us. If you're in Christ, your salvation will not change. If you are in Christ, your calling will not change. 
If you're in Christ, your provision for fulfilling your calling will not change. On Wednesday morning and Thursday morning and in 2024 and in 2028 and however long the Lord gives you your calling, your responsibilities, your privileges are still the same. Oh, the circumstances will change. But our task is the same. Nothing changes. So you can go to bed on Tuesday night and not be anxious because whatever happens while you sleep, when you awaken in the morning, everything that is needful for you will be the same. Same provision, same salvation, same calling, Same care. Brothers and sisters, we're safe because of Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder of these few verses. We need these. We need these to know how to care for one another. We need these to know how to love. We need these to know how to live in this world, in this day. We need these to know how to live this week when many of us are going to be tempted towards anxiety. Would you cause us to rest in you? And would you cause us to continue to labor on the things to which you have called us? so that you are honored. And now, Father, would you remind us again as we come to the table of Christ of your magnificent provision for us in our Savior so that we can do the very things that you have called us to do. This we pray in the name of Christ for his honor. Amen.